We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Everybody, it's Dave with Such Fidel. I'm coming at you once again with Michael Graney and Don Brohan of the Center for Economic and Social Justice. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever, whenever you are. Put all those Don. things to you, Steve. <laughs> somewhere in the world, it's one of them. Yes, exactly. It's five o'clock somewhere, too. Uh, well, we're here today to talk about the four pillars of the just economy. So let's get right to it. Uh, should we talk about what is a pillar? No. What are these four pillars? Well, you know, the way you just asked the question, it's, it's a good way to start. When we talk about pillars, we use that image just to say, what are the essential building blocks um, that policymakers should always take into consideration uh, when they're designing our laws um, and, uh, and rules and policies? In order, and we're looking at this in the context of a free market system and we believe that in order for a free market system to be free it must operate under um, the rules of justice and that basically means how each person every person can participate fully in the marketplace not only as a consumer but as a producer and that, of course, will raise some other questions in terms of how can someone, even a newborn baby, be a producer as well as a consumer. Uh, but the main thing is that every human being uh, needs to be empowered in order to function uh, effectively and, and also be able to produce to the extent that they seek to, to consume their goods or the goods of someone else. So I'll start with that and maybe Mike, if you want to uh, mention specific things, we can talk about those. Okay, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll put the one that we're going to explain in most detail first, which is widespread capital ownership. This is what Leo XIII was talking about in Rerum Novarum that, you know, basically government policy should be to encourage private ownership of capital so that most of the, the great mass of the people prefer to be owners. Unfortunately, he gave a wrong way, not, not a wrong way, not the best way of doing so, but that's not the point. The point was that it is a pillar of society, of a just economy, that as many as possible of the people should own capital. Uh, when he was Archbishop Bishop of Perugia, before he was Pope, Leo XIII even established a savings bank with his own money so that ordinary people could own farms and businesses. Okay, the two, a limited economic role for the state. One of the most serious problems in the world today, you know, actually not the, the probably about six or seven on the list, is the belief that the state must do everything, 
The state must control the economy. The state must provide all the money. The state must do this, do that, do everything else. Well, actually, the state could do as little as possible simply because for, for our own safety. Uh, the state is a monopoly. And that means that it has the authority to use the instruments of coercion to force you to do what the state has determined you should be doing if you're not doing it. It can throw you in jail. It can put you on trial. It can do quite a bit, presumably through due process and for just cause, but that's a, almost another issue. The fact is that the state should provide and protect the environment within which people do for themselves. They, uh, they can take, thrive. Pardon? Yeah, that they can thrive in. Yeah. Exactly. So the state doesn't do it for us directly, except as an expedient in an emergency. The goal of the state should not be to take care of everybody, but to help everybody take care of themselves through their own efforts. Three, restoration of the rights of private property. Here's where you get the crash course in private property. Every single human being on the face of the earth has the natural right to be an owner. What is socially, the other part of property is what an owner may do with what the owner owns. Uh, and even in many cases, what can be owned. I mean, in theory, some people would say that the, because I have the natural right to be an owner and this right is absolute in every single human being, I can own atomic weapons and do anything I want with them. Well, no, because that may come under the natural right to be an owner, but it certainly violates the rights of ownership. You have the right to property and the rights of property. Unfortunately, what has happened in the modern world is that the rights of property have been limited to such an extent that they've nullified the right to be an owner in the first place. Famous case, Dodge versus Ford Motor Company back in 1919. The Dodge brothers, you're probably familiar with the word Dodge, uh, were the second largest shareholders in the Ford Motor Company after Henry Ford. They wanted some input into management decisions and design and a few other things. Henry Ford said no and stopped paying dividends. So the Dodge brothers sued saying, we're part owners. We are entitled to income from what we own. And the Michigan Supreme Court said, no, you're not. Not if Henry Ford says, no, he's the majority owner. And this was something called the business judgment rule where a shareholder who by natural right has the right to receive dividends, and in fact owns the profits of the corporation, has to prove to the uh, uh, satisfaction of the court and of the corporation that the corporation will not need those profits for something else. And that, well, that's exactly backwards. The corporation should have to prove to the shareholders why they're not, why they're withholding dividends, not the shareholder has to prove why they should pay them out. But this is, you know, that they call it the business judgment rule, and it's the rule today. I mean, Apple was sued, has been sued a couple of times because they refuse to pay out dividends. The owners aren't getting what they own. Uh, sorry about that. I'm getting a little excited. Uh, four, the fourth pillar, free and open markets within an understandable and fair system of law. 
this doesn't mean you know anything goes war you know lex telemics law of, you know law of the jungle what it means is that as long as you're obeying the reasonable laws that you can understand uh you can do as you wish as long as you're not harming yourself other people or the common good as a whole uh ever it also means and this is very important everyone should be free to enter the market and participate both as a worker as a as an owner of capital as a consumer and as a voter and as a political participant i mean the market isn't just something that a few people control for the alleged benefit of everyone it's something to which every in which everyone participates this is why we you know build the, these four pillars of an economically just society on the three principles of economic justice that we uh covered the last time in the last uh, uh, what do we call it episode segment whatever show which is distributive the, the principle of distribution the principle of participation which actually I should have said first and the principle of social justice so that everyone has the right to participate in the market everyone has the right to receive a distribution commensurate with the value of someone's contribution to an endeavor and if something is not working right then they can organize with others and fix it so that things do work properly Oh, it's like uh, Garcia Moreno's line, liberty for all except evil and evildoers. <laughs> sort of, yeah. 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 That's I, one way of putting it. Yeah, I think, I think the idea that is very important here is that you want to have as much as possible um, a system of laws that really maximizes freedom and just guards against some people taking advantage of others or some people harming the general welfare or the common good. Um, so going back to some of the things Mike was talking about, the connection between uh, the universal human right to be an owner and for to take uh, the second pillar, which is the limited economic role of the, of the state. We also, along with that, we see the limited economic power of the state. And we believe that economic power should rest in the people or we should say even more explicitly all citizens each and every citizen should have power the, the power to be able to uh, be economically self-sufficient so not beholden to either the government or to any particular employer so you really need true economic freedom and you want to make sure that the state is the servant of the people and not the other way around. So we would also say along with that is that generally speaking, anything that is owned by the government could be owned by the people or where there is something that could be owned by the people. And now we're not talking about atomic weapons as Mike gave one example of certain things that individuals should not own. Um, and some would say that no one, the no state should, but that's another matter. But the point is that uh, we want to make sure that ownership of things that produce goods and services are not owned by government, but there are different mechanisms by which they can be owned by individuals or associations of individuals. So private property can be uh, extended into many things that today are considered, you know, public property, government owned. 
So that is um, the first. The second, where we're talking about the rights, the full rights of private property. Um, one of the problems, and um, there's a, a beautiful statement in uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was developed right after the Second World War. And it's, it, it's a statement that I think everyone should read and be familiar with. It's pretty much totally based on the US Constitution and Bill of Rights. And it starts with the idea of the dignity and the freedom of each individual human being wherever they are. And in its Article 17, it talks about the right of every person to own property uh, individually or in association with others. And the second part is that no one shall be deprived arbitrarily of their property. And when we talk about property, we're not talking about a chunk of land or a building or a this or that a thing. We're talking, as Mike says, um, said about the rights of an owner in, to the fruits of what the thing produces for him or her, as well as control over how that thing is used. So that kind of so, flies right in the face of that AOC eviction uh, mandate a couple days ago, right? Yeah, and and so you and that's a very good you know example of where you have one human need, and you have people who are not able to produce sufficient income that they can pay the people who extended them a service or a good, in this case a, a dwelling, which you know every human being really I think needs some kind of shelter that's part of our survival needs. So what do you do in a you know an economy which is not enabling people to produce sufficiently that they're earning their own income and they're able to afford to pay for the goods they need? And so what happens is, as Mike said, we have to know when something should only be used as an expedient in an emergency. And so what's happened is we have built into the system this long-term approach, which is it just extending an expedient, which is violating private property. So where it may be necessary, I think uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, talked about, sometimes you do have emergencies, but this is not the normal situation. This is not the rule. This is an exception. So I think, you know, we need to, when we say policy pillars, what some are trying to do is to take expedience and make them permanent policy. Um, and what that does is that it undermines a free and non-monopolistic and competitive marketplace. I mean, when you talk about tariffs, that's not a free market. Um, if you're talking about barriers to entry, that's not a free market. If you talk about allowing companies to start becoming monopolies or very close to it, just a few competitors, that's not a free market. And also we would say, and this is um, important, that if each person doesn't have the power of ownership, they can't really participate fully or on an equal opportunity basis with you know, other people or companies in the marketplace. So, all right, go ahead and go ahead and be frank and precise and honest. Is the United States of America a free market economy? Everyone hears no. free market, free market. We have the no. free market. Yeah. No, 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 no. Explicitly, no. Not as bad as some places. I would say North Korea is definitely not a free market economy. 
but I and Mike will give you lots of details on why this is not the case. But in in just in so many instances, and and let's say we should say that in some cases this has come about with good intentions, where you see, for example, people not earning enough to you know to live off. They can't support their families. So what is the solution? You say we got to raise the minimum wage. we got to raise it to $15 because that's how much. You uh, want me to play Joe Biden? Pay, pay them more. I gave them, them money. Yeah, pay them more. <laughs> and this is the problem is where did that money come from, number one? Obama stash. Well, it may yep. have come. Maybe it came from taxpayer money that's already been collected, but that is highly unlikely. It is coming from taxpayer money to be collected at some time in the future. So in other words, someone didn't produce, but they got the income in order to be able to meet their, you know, dire necessities. So, you know, let's keep that in mind. So the whole system, because it's been operating on false assumptions, and, and truly disempowering approaches, even though the intention is, uh, you know, I think I, I'm going to just assume that there's really concern about human suffering, you know. I know Michael um, remembers that. Don, you, you know what I'm talking about with the Obama stash? You remember that one? Somebody <laughs> asked him about the cell phones. He, I don't know. He, he got it from his stash. I, Obama um, money. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I say, you know, I think that there are a lot of people, I'm going to assume that most start with, you know, true concern for other people and they see suffering and they just want to do something about it. And the first thing they turn to are the assumptions of this very uh, out, well, it's not even outmoded paradigm. It never worked. So what we're saying is to start rebuilding a, to a true free market economy, there's some essentials. And so that's what the four policy pillars that we can always look, uh, look at any policy that's being proposed and do a checklist of all those four. And, you know, I, I should say that conservatives, uh, at least, um, you know, in terms of economic conservatives, conservatives. should have, yeah, yeah, so I know, those who, who would consider themselves free market advocates will have no problem with three of the pillars we're talking about even though we would say, you know, what you're proposing or what you're allowing to happen is to allow for an unequal playing field. And you're, you know, to claim that there is a free market um, will actually, when it doesn't exist, is going to actually make, you know, enabling a free market to emerge, it's gonna make it much more difficult. So there is, they do not acknowledge that private property has been eroded in corporate equity. They don't acknowledge that while we can say this is a right under our, our Constitution and Bill of Rights, how many people actually are able to exercise it, you know, in terms of productive, the things that produce goods and services? Oh, you're free to have private property in your house. Yes, but if you don't have income, you may lose your house. So we're saying also you talk about free markets. Well, you know, we got to look at is there true equal opportunity to enter the marketplace as a um, as a worker and as a as a capital contributor? Um, is now in terms of limited government, and they certainly would agree with that. But you can see what's happened that 
you know, it's not just the Democrats, it's certainly the Republicans as well who are willing to just say, you know, crank up the money presses here. They may have varying levels of how much they're going to use it, but both sides are quite willing to to do that and to go into debt. So, you know, that's uh, that's my tirade. <laughs> Michael. Well, as when you say why a free market, the, the first thing that comes to mind is why not? But and then you ask, well, do we have one? And the one word answer, as Don put it, is no. Or if you want the three word answer, it's no, no, no. Uh, but as I, you know, just to reiterate what I already said, free market doesn't mean anything goes. What it means is that within a coherent system of law and understandable and justly structured institutions, everyone, not just citizens, because there are people who may not be citizens, everyone should have the right of free access to the market and access to the opportunity and means to participate in the market as both labor and owners, owners, excuse me, as owners of labor and owners of capital. I, I slipped into a common error there. I called people labor. No, no, no. People are not labor. People are owners of labor and they are owners of capital. Once you start calling, dividing them into labor and capital, you've depersonalized it. And our whole approach is personalism. Speaking so of that, avoid that. Speaking of that, why is the free market essential for a personalist society? Because a person, and this is legally within civil society, a person is defined as that which has rights. You know, we have natural persons which have rights by nature. Those are human beings. Now, if you want to get into theology, you can say, oh, yes, angels and God are persons also because they have inherent rights into their nature. But we don't have to worry about that, at least right now. Human beings as natural persons have rights. That means they have the right to life, to liberty, and to private property. Well, if you do not have a free market within which you can exercise your rights in a structured manner and a just manner, then do you really have the effective right to be alive? There are a lot of people today say, no, you don't. Do you have real liberty, freedom of association, freedom of contract? Well, they make, for quite some time, there are a number of people in this country who couldn't vote. How free is that? I mean, you're not even allowed to exercise the ballot. Uh, the right to private property. Now, everyone, at least the conservatives, may give lip service, as Don pointed out, to, oh, anyone can be an owner if you just got enough guts and gumption to, to do so. But do you have access to the opportunity? Allegedly, you have the opportunity, but opportunity to, do, to own what? And very important, access to the means. In a modern developed economy, access to the means means the ability to borrow money or participate in money creation in order to finance a capital project that you can own and receive the fruits of, meaning the income and con income from it and control over it. Ask most people today in this country if they can uh, 
if they have the ability to finance something that they can own and receive an income from, and very few people will be able to answer yes. And I think there's also a good portion of the population who are actually more in debt than they own assets. And if you look at income producing assets, that's gonna be a very small fraction of uh, even our society. Um, I, there was one word I think we haven't really used um, very much today and that's power. So when you ask why is a free market essential to a personalist society, it's because to be free, you must have power. And to have power in the economy, you must own. It's not sufficient just to be a worker for hire because your labor at some point may not be needed. And I think we're being confronted with that reality more and more every day um, in terms of what technology can um, replace the various forms of labor, not only manual labor or driving trucks, but also in terms of the number of lawyers that are needed, the number of teachers that are needed, even scientists and what they do. So we're faced with this, what would seem to be almost a no-win game, that is technology starts to replace the need for almost all forms of human labor, the more you incorporate uh, artificial intelligence and robotics, you know, what's gonna happen to people? How, how are most people gonna earn a living? And the answer is actually very, very simple. They should own the, the machines, the technology that are replacing their labor. And you don't have to be a genius who knows how to use a, you know, a robot and figure out how to use the robot. No, you can own shares of companies, productive, competitive companies that need to use these technologies in order to provide goods and services to as you know more and more customers that's what businesses want is customers with money so you have to figure out a way and and i think we have the connection um power follows property that that notion was embedded at the, in the thinking of um, this country's founders they were you know looking at uh the ideas of Locke and algernon sydney in terms of that connection between power and property. So for a free market system, as Mike said, it's you do have to have laws to the extent that you don't want people to violate contracts, to abuse other people, to take advantage of them or to block entry. And so when we look at laws and the role of the state in the economy, it really should be minimal it should only be there as the thou shalt nots in order so that we have equal equality of opportunity. So that's, and then when we look at that, we have to look at equality of access to the means to acquire capital, because that's going to be access to the means to have your own personal power and to, and, and that's the personalist society is really looking at everyone as a sovereign being by right, by nature. You know, and, and so we have to figure out not only the political structure for that, but the economic structure, which is ultimately, I think what we're seeing is that politics are guided so much by the economics. 
and who has power in the economy. We can't ignore that. So therefore, if concentrated power corrupts, absolutely, and I think we can see that happening. The only antidote, if we also recognize that power is essential for a human being to live as a free being, the only answer to concentrated power is to make sure it's broken up down to the level of every person. Yeah, and to underscore that, uh, in their final debate in, I think it was October 1927, G.K. Chesterton and George Bernard Shaw uh, got up after Hilaire Belloc, who was rather immoderately moderating the thing, said he was going to, they were there to talk, the audience was there to listen, and he was there to sneer, which he did. Uh, Chesterton got up and said, what we're talking about is power. And of course, Chesterton's thing was called distributism, which he defined as a policy of widely distributed, widely distributed property with a preference for you know small family-owned farms and businesses. But his main point he, that he stressed was, we're talking about power here, implying the power that people have should have over their own destinies, over to control their own lives, to produce what they consume. You know, basically to be able to grow and develop as a human being. Shaw, who was the chief spokesman for the Fabian Society, you know, Fabian Socialism, uh, got up and said, no, 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 that's completely unimportant. The only thing that is important at all is income, because it's the only thing that exists. So, of course, neither Shaw nor Chesterton could ever come to an agreement. And Belloc got up at the end of this so-called debate and said, see, I was right. We didn't settle anything at all. <laughs> that was well, at the beginning of this. I was thinking of uh, I brought up Moreno before, and Michael, you've heard this story. Don, you may not have. It was, uh, it was an earthquake in Ecuador, destroyed this town, and uh, it was before his third presidency. And people asked him to come help out because there was uh, people taking advantage of the situation, selling water for the like, you know, whatever the, the money was at the time, but extraordinary amounts of money for him to get water. So he publicly flogged the man who was doing that, screwing with his people, basically. And lo and behold, nobody did that again. <laughs> well, I guess that's kind of uh, the uh, effect of a law. If you know what the consequence is going to be, it can be a deterrent. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and, and that's, that's I, I would say that that's another limitation on what you might call free market, uh, how free market should operate that here's someone he's acting according to the marketplace which is when something is very scarce you know it's uh becomes more and more expensive or the the seller can charge you know up to whatever the limit is now is that right when you have people who are dying starving or whatever else and someone who has is going to take advantage of that using market principles i mean this is the free market um, you know, then you have to look at, you know, various other moral virtues here. And I think also, and this is important, the idea, we've talked about the common good, which is an essential concept in personalism, and that we, we define the common good in the way that Pius XI and Father Free talked about, and that is, it's the net interconnected network of all social institutions, which are human creations or tools that were put to, which were devised in order to help people d 
develop as human beings and every human being to provide the environment and the social construct where they can develop as fully to their fullest uh, potential. So that's the common good and every individual should have full access to all institutions of the common good. Another concept, which I think gets confused with the common good is general welfare. And I think, you know, Mike can go into this because he's done, you know, a lot of analysis of the concept of legal ju justice as sort of this general virtue that we all should try and obey the laws and that's going to help, you know, this legal justice, whereas social justice is more specifically an act that uh, responsibility each of us has to tend to, to help perfect and correct the common good. But the general welfare where you have a situation where one person basically has all the means of survival and you have the rest of society just about ready to die off. The general welfare is not served. It is harmed if that person is going to withhold, you know, the means for other people to survive. But say you have a conflict here, that's the person's property rights, you know? And so how do you resolve that? Well, and I think, uh, as the popes have pointed out, and Thomas Aquinas, that this is an exceptional situation, and don't treat this as the rule, but then there are going to be moments where you have to look at the impact, you know, on everyone else in society, what you do vis-a-vis -vis them. Yeah, I remember that there's a great line of um, Angel Wilkow, I used to listen to him back in the day, he brought up the line, the same sentence, but different meaning. The state says, you you will help these people. The church will ask, will you help these people? Same words, different context. Yes, and then what's the consequences that the, the church speaks of if you don't help these people? <laughs> I think that, Mike, is that where you're talking about supernatural virtues? Well, or yeah, up to a point. Now, in Rerum Novarum, paragraph 22, if you really want to know, Leo XIII, you know, explained, ordinarily, charity comes under, you know, almsgiving gives, excuse me, distributing to people on the basis of need comes under charity. Mm -hmm. And it must be voluntary or it's not really charity. Mm -hmm. There are, however, certain extreme cases, and he, and he uses the exact term, in extreme cases, however, it falls under justice if the, it's so bad that the state can justify, you know, adding extra taxation for redistribution to keep people alive and in reasonable health. But it's an expedient and emergency under the principle of double effect. It is not a prescription on how to run society. It's an emergency thing. Yeah, and I think also, as Pius XI says, and Father Faree reminds us, that where you have to exercise an expedient, you must at the same time be working on restructuring the social order or an institution so that this doesn't happen again, you know, to the extent you can prevent it. So there's always this constant, okay, we may have to do this right now, but at the same time, we're working on correcting the system so people don't end up in the same situation again, or we can, you know, lessen the damage to people. Yeah. And in fact, I, I have written in other places on, you know, what most people leave out of the principle of double effect. You know, 
the whole thing is that what it, you're you're permitted to do something that is not quite good or is sometimes regarded as evil, but it must not be objectively evil. That is inherently evil in and of itself. And the anticipated good must outweigh the anticipated unintended evil. You must never intend to do evil, whether it's objectively evil or not objectively evil, you know, evil in and of itself. And the, the part that you, you must not offend anyone else's rights by doing this. The part that they always leave out is that, or are at least not aware of, is that you can, the principle of double effect is not a permanent solution. You have to take steps so that the, the situation doesn't occur again if you can possibly help it. Otherwise, all you've done is, you know, syst, uh, institutionalize an injustice because even allowing an unintended evil is unjust if you put it into your system. So what is the fatal omission that every economy has done in the world today? I mean, I guess you, I was thinking off also before I, before I asked that was, what would you say to people that watch Cavuto or Rick Santelli on CNNBC or any of the talking heads on the business channels that say, free market, we're a free market economy, free. What would you say to the people saying, uh, let me to give you this pill. <laughs> that's that's easy, Steve. It's the pillar number one, and that is the universal human right to become an owner of capital and to have access, equal access to the means to become a capital owner. So we would say to the people who think, and this is not just the CNN people or whatever, it's it's across the spectrum. Um, of ideologies. Oh, I mentioned Fox. I mentioned Cavuto. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> you can tell I don't watch. Um, but the missing element is is capital ownership as part of the system, not as an exception for a few, you know, genius entrepreneurs or fortunate inheritors of wealth. But there is, there are practical, feasible, business oriented ways for non-owners to become owners of capital using capital credit, insured capital credit to purchase those productive things that will create the goods and services that generate more profits that will pay off the loan and thereafter become um, a source of income. So I got the, hold on, I gotta say yeah. this before I forget. Okay, okay good, good. Well, remember that great line? Great. By that president that said, I got to destroy the free market, to save the free market. <laughs> yeah. No, that doesn't really work. As Mike was saying, I don't even think that comes under the principle of double effect. <laughs> but, like what they said about John Maynard Keynes, that he saved capitalism by turning it into socialism. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's about it. Yeah. Well, here's the line we would say to, to any of them. And, and it's amazing how many people react to this without, you know, the line is own or be owned. Hey, you guys got some t-shirts like that. It's the we got t-shirts and I don't have it on right now. If you want any, you can go to the CESJ uh, website under store. Uh, yeah, I got the sign up. Owned or be owned. The own zone. The own zone. <laughs> yes. We'd love for people to visit that. 
Yes, and I, you know, it's amazing that when we go around, you know, to people in all parts of this country from different backgrounds, different political persuasions, um, and people from around the world, that is the one phrase that catches their attention. And it's a very interesting thing because most human beings do not own capital, but they understand what it is to be placed in a position where suddenly they, you know, they're trapped, either at a job or they're unemployed, trying to become employed or whatever else. So that's, if you want a free market, you better make sure that everyone has equal opportunity to become a capital owner. Yeah, and this has become so alien in a lot of cultures that people, the, the reason they react so positively to it is that wow, this is a, such a new idea, whereas it's pro probably one of the oldest ideas in the world. I, I re To show you how alien it's become, once I tried to translate it into German, and I ended up with a paragraph. In other words, in English, it's own or be owned. In German, it was, you must be a, a possessor of, of income generating assets if you wish to be a free man with rights. Or something, it was just some hideous, <laughs> long phrase that just didn't come snapping out. But German does not have a quick way of saying own or be owned. I think another point that I should make is that for probably the middle class in America, it's not a familiar concept at all. And for economists, let's say that's where it starts is that in any university, I don't care where you go in this country around the world, if you look at what is considered the way that people can earn a living, and it's not just the top tier, this is everyone. They will only look at wages, you know, selling your labor. They will not look at ownership. So the people that I've encountered who react most immediately to that concept happen to be African-Americans because they know what it's like to have been owned. And they also know that, and this was, you know, after the Civil War, um, many sought to have, you know, acquire property, land, property and land. And they became, you know, self-sufficient and successful in, some, in many cases. And they also had their land expropriated through various means. So they understand that when we're talking ownership, that if you don't have it, you're going to be subjected to someone else's, you know, what they want you to do. The other people who also understood, which was, uh, you know, I guess I shouldn't be surprised actually, was um, there's a, a story in the history of CESJ um, about um, a plantation in Guatemala called La Perla. And it's a great story, but in any case, um, this was um, an isolated coffee plantation in the mountains of Guatemala, and it was surrounded by uh, communist insurgents. This during uh, Reagan's uh, administration. And the son of the owner, the owner had been killed, um, I think handing paychecks out to the, the, the workers on the, the farm. And the son who knew one of our, you know, colleagues in this, um, with this idea, um, he decided, yeah, he was going to he was going to enable the workers in his farm to become owners. 
on credit. So this would be they're not asked to give up their non-existent savings, but they would start to share in profits as owners. And so um, our friend went up to one of the farm workers and um, asked him, do you understand what we're talking about, that you, you're going to become a part owner in this, this operation? And this is an older man. He said, well, I don't know how to read or write, but I know how to think. You see that coffee bush over there? I own some of those beans. And that was a perfect way of explaining rights of ownership to the fruits of what you own. So that was, you know, they, he understood it better than the average person in America today. That's for sure. I mean, how many of you guys, I'm sure you saw the NBA owners can't be called owners because we're so woke. Uh, well, who knows about all of that, you know, the, the wokeness. I don't know. It's, it's good to be aware of things, you know. I, I think there's there are certainly a lot of serious problems that are, uh, you know, I, I think during this horrible time of, you know, the pandemic, a lot of things that were there under the surface, a lot of problems, I think, really burst to the surface. And and now it's, you know, it's a matter of acknowledging them and, and understanding how, a system can really start to bring these things to aggravate or to to cause some of these problems and so this is why we are talking about personalism as a really an alternative view of how the world could work i mean as as opposed to um, insanity yeah well yeah <laughs> but I, you know i think you have individualism which i think americans consider themselves to be individualists and you have collectivism and you can see where the extremes of either side will lead to someone or a lot of people getting hurt or subjugated. So what personalism, and I think this is where the, the, um, the social encyclicals, the teachings of the Catholic Church and other thinkers, um, and we talk about um, the, the man who, who, well, there were two, who formulated the the theory of economic justice in terms of principles of participative justice, distributive justice, and then what we kind of modified into social justice. Um, but I think this notion of the building block, the starting point for all systems and all institutions must be each person, each human person. And so that's not thinking of just a few individuals who are the strongest or the smartest or the swiftest taking charge of everyone else, or this collective, this amorphous abstract, which someone else is going to, someone's going to take charge of that, you know, make decisions for everyone else. So these, this is not, this is not a good society. This is not going to be one that will enable every, every single human being to develop freely um, to his or her greatest potential. Michael. I agree. <laughs> That's the problem. If I drone on too long, it's like, <laughs> Well, I, I can't say one thing, you know, just to, to backpedal just a little bit. Uh, the, the, the La Perla story was included in a report or an orientation book uh, from, on the Presidential Task Force for Project Economic Justice. The report of which, well, it was, I, I could go into, that's a, that's a whole show on itself. But the report was presented to President Reagan and also to Pope St. John Paul II. 
And we have unconfirmed reports. I, I wish we could confirm them, but at this point it's probably impossible that uh, John Paul II actually recommended on at least three occasions to visiting heads of state that they implement the, the recommendations of the CESJ Presidential Task Force report for expanded capital ownership. As I said, we have no way to verify that. And of course, if it was done, the heads of state obviously did nothing about it. But the fact is that we do believe that this just third way of economic personalism is in you know, at material conformity with Catholic social teaching, which is not just for Catholics or even Jews or just Muslims. It's for everybody. I think NSA is listening, so I'll, I'll, we're just, I'm, I'm at least talking at the phone, so I'm waiting for my uh, accountant to re reply back to me. So, yeah, we have tape on that. I, I know you watched out there, Jack. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> enough fully in rant. Uh, Promote the site. The where, where can they get the book? At uh, if you go to the CESJ website, CES as in samj.org, and scroll down, you'll see bookstore. Um, and then under the bookstore, you can get. Um, we we have actually free books. There's a section on that you can put into the search engine, and there you can actually get a copy of the presidential task force uh, report and the orientation book. They're, those are free PDFs. I think the book you may be mentioning right now is our latest one, Economic Personalism, uh, Property, Power, and Justice for Every Person. And so we uh, that is also available through Amazon. We have a link uh, through our website uh, to it um, that goes to Amazon. Very good. So. What, what do you say, Michael? I had it on the screen. PDF on the website in case you don't want to fork over the, the enormous amount of $10 from Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Yes. Oh, yes, that's right. That, so you can actually get that free PDF, which I hope will inspire everyone to, to purchase a, a hard copy. Um, but there is a link um, as you scroll to the bottom. Um, it's under, I think it's... Um, special features it's on the left side and it's the first one that will say economic personalism and that goes to a landing page and an explanation of of the book so that'll get you there very good michael don appreciate as always well thank you steve we appreciate this opportunity to speak to you and your audience